This episode is graphic in nature and discusses suicidal ideation. Listener discretion is advised. A source called me up and said, David, I've got something you're going to be interested in this. This report is basically going to blow your mind. The two separate murder-suicides in the same town were linked. The similarities were such that they had to be considered as having been carried out by the same person. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Cheshire, England, 1996. Howard Ainsworth violently bludgeoned his wife to death with a hammer before taking his own life. Three years later, in the same town, Donald Ward beat his wife to death with a ceramic hot water bottle before using the shards of glass to take his own life. At least, that's what the police report concluded. In 2020, Cheshire coroner Stephanie Davies re-examined the deaths and other similar cases, to which she concluded that they were not murder-suicides, but rather the work of an enigmatic serial killer who would go on to be dubbed the Silver Killer. Today, journalist and author David Collins tells us about the inconsistent crime scenes, the report that rocked Cheshire police, and the hunt for the serial killer that you've never heard of. I'm Claude Meany and this is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So David, this is quite like a story that I have never heard before. It is very unusual. Can you tell me a little bit about how this story kind of ended up going across your desk? What happened was I got a call at the start of 2020. It was locked down. I was working from home, basically working in my, in, in my shed at the bottom of the garden when a source who's very close to uh, Cheshire Police Force called me up out of the blue and said, David, I've got something you're going to be interested in this. It's a report. Uh, it comes from inside the coroner's office uh, for Cheshire. And... This report is basically going to blow your mind and you should read it. So that's how it started. Uh, The contact sent me the report and I read it and I remember reading it in one sitting. And basically, the senior coroner's officer for Cheshire Police had concluded in this report that wasn't meant to be read by the public, it was an internal report, had concluded that there were two murder-suicides that had happened in Wilmslow, both in the 1990s, uh, one in 1996 and the other in 1999, the report said that the police had got it wrong, that they were not murder-suicides, that in each case, the husband had wrongly been blamed for killing their wife and and taking their own life. So that's what the police said, that there were murder-suicides, that the husband for whatever reason, went mad, killed their wives, and then took their own life. What the coroner's, senior coroner's officer found was that uh, the evidence was inconsistent with those findings and that the cases should be reopened and that they believed that the two separate murder-suicides in the same town in Wilmslow were linked, that the similarities were such that they had to be considered as having been carried out by the same person, an offender that was unknown. 
uh, mm-hmm. to basically the police and the investigation. So that's what the report says. And it really it started from there. I just uh, kind of started working on it for the newspaper, for the Sunday Times, for the, uh, on the, uh, for the Insight team, the investigations team. And we worked on it for about six months, kind of taking the report, using that as the kind of basis to start work on, looking at the evidence, speaking to witnesses, people who knew the families, whatever evidence we could get hold of to try and build up our own investigation. Mm. So those two cases that you're you're talking about there, they kind of make up the bulk of, of the review. So that's um, Herod and B. Ainsworth, as well as Donald and Ariel Ward. Can you tell us a little bit about, there was one thing in particular that connected these two people, which I thought was extremely interesting, is that they were both part of a euthanasia society, right? So one of them was, and the other wasn't. So, uh, so Howard and B. Ainsworth were part of uh, basically they signed up to a euthanasia group um, Howard quite strongly believed that uh, once they were kind of uh, too ill to look after themselves um, they were no longer capable of looking after themselves that uh, euthanasia was you know potentially the way that they they wanted to go Um uh, so he signed up to a group. It was, a, it was, a, it was called basically. It's, 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 it was a Scottish euthanasia society called Exit, and they signed up to that, and they kind of got like uh, literature sent to them, um, information basically on how to carry euthanasia out. Uh, but there's no evidence. So, so that was that was that was them. But Donald and Oriel weren't part of any sort of group or society, or they, there was no evidence that they had any euthanasia beliefs. Mm, okay, and so the, the second couple, Donald and, and Ariel, um, can you tell us a little bit about kind of, I suppose, both scenes in a, in a way, kind of what the what the stage? You know, they said that this was a stage scene, perhaps. So. The intriguing thing about both cases is that, um, firstly, there was never any motive that could ever be found uh, for the husbands having carried out, you know, these brutal murders on their wives um, in, in each case. So Howard killing, uh, uh, or um, Howard killing B Ainsworth and Donald killing his wife Oriel. There was never any evidence that either Howard or Donald were unhappy in their marriages. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, neighbours, family, family, friends said that both couples were really happily married, long-term marriages. They were in good... Both couples were in good health. They had no medical complications. There was no sickness or disease or illness. They were both... Couples were very well, you know, off... comfortable financially living in nice houses in Wilmslow so there was no kind of trigger event and that's what police often look for in case of murder-suicide there's often especially with elderly couples there's often a kind of uh, a family reason something's happened some sort of trauma perhaps there might be illness there Um, there might be financial difficulty there's often something that the police can say this is what caused it. 
they could never find anything. Um, and in fact, in, in each case, the coroner uh, at the inquest, which happened afterwards, said they were completely inexplicable. There was no evidence or no reason to suggest why both husbands might have done it. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, Howard, both murders were, were different in that, uh, in some ways, uh, they were both found in their bedrooms, in a mar marital bedroom. Both couples were found lying in their beds. Or the, the, the woman was on the right-hand side, uh, the man was on the left-hand side in both cases. They were in the nightclothes. In the first case in 1996, which was uh, Howard, uh, Howard and B. Um, Howard, the police thought, uh, well, they were found basically where B had a, a knife in her forehead, embedded in her forehead. She'd been beaten around the head dozens of times with a hammer. Uh, there was evidence of beating before that. Um, she was really, really uh, kind of, you know, brutalised, really. Um, whereas Howard was found relatively kind of, not many marks on him. He had a bag over his head, uh, which was why, largely, they thought it was murder-suicide. They thought that Howard had basically hit her over the head a number of times and then killed her by taking a kitchen knife and plunging it through her forehead. Uh, and then shortly afterwards, you know, the police thought that he put a bag over his head and he suffocated himself. So that's what the police said. So um, quite violent, even a quite, quite violent, violent way, way to even take, take your, your own, own life. Yeah. I mean, well, certainly, I mean, certainly the violence on B was extraordinary. Um, you know, really unusual. I mean, this is this is Wilmslow, which is quite a kind of leafy, affluent area. You know, lots of children are sent to private schools. Um, you know, it's got a real continental feel to the town. It's quite like bars and restaurants, people eating and drinking outside. It's it's not used to kind of that that sort of violence from happening. So the whole community in the street were utterly shocked. Mm -hmm. by what had happened. But the police concluded that, that Howard was the killer pretty soon after they entered uh, the house. Now, three years later, the same thing happened again, just around the corner. Uh, the police go into the... Uh, in this case, it was uh, Donald and Oriel Ward. Donald was a retired chemist. Oriel was a retired nursery teacher. They lived in a very big house with a big plot of land in Wilmslow. Police go in and find a, quite a similar scene. The bodies are arranged in a similar way, same sides of the beds. They're in the night clothes, married couple. Uh, Oriel is stabbed multiple times. Um, uh, Donald, in this case, very different to Howard, in how the police said he took his life, which was essentially <coughs> using a kitchen knife to um to stab to stab himself to death um 
again, we're seeing that we're seeing that violence, that kind of out of the ordinary violence, especially that you wouldn't see maybe if you're trying to gently, you know, t- take somebody else's life as part of a, a suicide pact or as part of euthanasia. Well, certainly euthanasia. I mean, it's really unusual. Euthanasia is about making it easier for yourself and easier for your loved ones who find you. Uh, but in this case, in, certainly in Donald and Oriol's case, it wasn't. It was not like that. Oriol was stabbed to death. She was stabbed dozens of times in the neck. You know, the bedroom was covered in blood. The bed, uh, the you know, the the bed sheets, the carpet, the furniture. Donald, the police said, had killed himself by slashing his uh, wrists, stabbing himself in the groin slicing his neck and then finally plunging a knife into his heart. So that was that was kind of what the police said. Um, they were both treated quite differently. They did, the police did do a proper kind of murder investigation into the, the second one. They thought for a long time that somebody had entered the house and killed them both. But then when they couldn't find evidence of a third party, they decided, they started to look at Donald's as being the killer and then they eventually concluded that he was the killer. So that's what happened and it would have been all kind of finished and over and um, nothing more, you know, to be said on it until um, in comes uh, Christine Hurst, who is the coroner's officer and then the senior coroner's officer of the Cheshire Police. Mm-hmm. So she works on the first case on the Howard and uh, B Ainsworth case, and she wasn't happy with it at all. She wasn't happy with the police's conclusions. She couldn't see why Howard would do that to his wife. She thought it was highly unusual, and there were things about the crime scene she thought didn't add up. He had injuries to his lips, bruises, which she thought were far more consistent with somebody suffocating him, putting a hand over his mouth and suffocating him. Um... There was also evidence that he that there was tablets just beside the bed, which he didn't take. Um, some experts say that it's really, really difficult, practically impossible, to actually suffocate yourself with just a bag, because uh, because at the moment in which you'll take your life, you know, you'll always take the bag off your head. That's why kind of euthanasia societies they recommend pills and the bag, and that you know. Um, but he didn't do one of those things. He didn't take the tablets. Mm. Uh, she thought that was inconsistent. Uh, there was also, there was no evidence that Howard had actually handled the murder weapons. There was no forensics done. There was no proper fingerprint analysis done. Um, so she wasn't happy with that. Mm-hmm. And also, one thing that did stick out to her was the the, you know, if the police are saying this was euthanasia, you know, euthanasia is about death with dignity. She did not see any dignity, you know, in the way that B had died. You know, she was brutally murdered. Um, this was not, you know, tablets and a bag over the head. You know, she did not choose to die in that way. And Howard hadn't used the methods that had been recommended. So there was a lot of inconsistencies there. Mm-hmm. But then when she kind of uh, three years later, she was the same commoner's officer for the for the next case, for the Do- Donald and Orville Ward case. 
And she saw the exact same things in the crime scene. The similarities she thought were astounding. For example, the way that both the women had been arranged in the bed, both of them had their night dresses pulled up to expose them. She thought that was an astonishing coincidence that both, I mean, it, it looked to her deliberate. Um, there was forensic evidence to say that it, that it was deliberate, that the perpetrator had pulled up the night dresses. Mm. And she found that incredible, you know, the fact that both Howard and Donald would choose to do it in that way. And in her view, it was, it was a humiliation uh, tactic. There was the use of uh, knives um, in both cases. They were both violent. They were both on the same side of the bed. You know, there was a lot of things that linked those two crime scenes, but she didn't believe that the police considered both the cases together. They were both treated in isolation, and that is something that really did worry her. And in one of the cases, in the case of uh, B and Howard, there was actually a suicide note left, which was kind of, you know, there was information in there that may not necessarily have been known by a killer, but maybe, but Stephanie Davis and her report believes that they could have found the information elsewhere within the home. Is that right? That's right. And also, it's interesting, the suicide note did turn the police towards thinking that Howard, Howard did it, and it looked to be written and signed by him. So they kind of read it, they saw the crime scene and thought, case closed. But when you look at the content of the letter, which um, both coroner's officers, you know, Christine Hurst, coroner's officer at the time, and then later Stephanie took over the job, who did the review into the, both the cases. The content of the letter writes what, apparently, what Howard is going to do, which is basically he's saying that, um, you know, they don't have the, any lives left because because his wife, B, is so sick, she's so ill, that she's got no quality of life left. Uh, and he's going to take both their lives and he's going to use uh, tablets and a bag to do that. But what we can see is that that, that doesn't happen. So what happened is, in reality is completely inconsistent with what is written in the notes. Um, what he writes in the note doesn't make sense, certainly to the GP who, uh, who had seen B a few days before. So B at the time had a tummy bug. So she basically she had gastroenteritis, which is basically a stomach bug. You know, it clears up in in a, in a matter of days. The, G, the GP had visited on the Friday and told both the couple, you know, look, there's nothing to worry about. The tummy bug is some uh, medication. And you'll be fine, right as rain in a few days. And she left the house feeling absolutely confident in Howard's care, that they were a loving couple who's looking after her, and she, she was going to make a full recovery. <laughs> I mean, B would walk for miles every day. You know, they both had regular health checks. They had no kind of illnesses. There was nothing wrong with them. You know, they could have lived for, you know, 10, 15, 20 more years. Um, who knows? Uh, mm -hmm. But in Howard's letter, he's suddenly it's the end of the world. They've got no quality of life left. B is this kind of um, ill, you know, lady who's never going to recover, and it doesn't. None of it really makes sense. Um, 
And that's basically why Howard says he's going to take her life. Um, so there is, so the coroner's officer saw inconsistencies in that note, whereas in a second case, just around the corner, there was no note found. Mm -hmm. um, Another thing that I suppose was what we could note as well is the fact that in the letter he had said, you know, that he was going to use pills and then and then strangulation and kind of there was another similar kind of thread in the other case and that they'd found medication in the room and made it, it was kind of staged almost to look like there had been medication used however following the toxicology report in in both case there was no such thing found in their systems so that that was another puzzling thing to the commons officers that he said he was going to take medication to take his life and give some to to be uh but there was no evidence that that had ever happened um you know the pills were found on his bedside table just beside him there's a few pill tablets missing from from the from the bottle there was no prescription on record for that type of drug it was hemeverin which is kind of a drug used for to treat uh, elderly people um who kind of have trouble sleeping um or it can be used in alcohol addiction, but it is a prescription drug and it's not a drug that was ever uh, prescribed by, uh, by either B. Ainsworth or, or Howard Ainsworth's GP. Uh, there was no records of them ever having been prescribed it, ever. Um, so the police never really worked out where they managed to get it from, where, that, where those drugs came from, why they were in that bedroom just beside Howard and why he never took them when he took his own life which seemed to be his plan in the letter they're all questions that were never answered so there is, there is a lot of unanswered questions in this case I mean when Stephanie did her review there was also a few other cases that she had kind of tacked in here as part of perhaps that they could have been could be linked to this potential serial killer that has been dubbed this the, the silver killer what sort of killer are we looking at here in terms of you know, their psychology, like what are they getting out of it? If there's no motive there, is it a thrill kill? What kind of person do we think is kind of behind something like this? I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if it would have to be somebody who's very clever, who's smart, uh, works out the patterns of behaviour of these people, um, goes after very vulnerable people that you can control physically, which elderly people, you know, elderly people tend to be a bit more frail, a bit less physically capable. Um, uh, the sort of person who well, has, has, has carried out uh, so, uh, some form of staging at, e at each of these scenes um, to point the blame towards the husband. Psychologically, it's interesting um, you know, the book does deal with that in, in some part. We've spoken to kind of police experts and the, the psychology of somebody who does something, somebody like this is, um, can, can, you can kind of read into some of it with what is found at the crime scenes. Um, so, for example, this is one thing I found interesting. Another thing that matches when we just talked about, you know, uh, both... B. Ainsworth and Oriel Ward had their night dresses pulled up to expose them. So that's 
somebody who wants to humiliate women doesn't like women um, for some reasons potentially views them as a threat and wants to kind of um, leave, leave them at the end of their lives in that humiliated state. Both of them also have a pillow over their faces. That's another interesting thing, uh, which some crime scene experts would describe that as the act of the killer not wanting to be seen by the victim, by the dead body, if you like, as they leave the room. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of a psychology in killers where some of them, once they've carried out the act, they don't like to be looked at by the person they've just killed. You know, there's a guilt or there's a shame in it for them and they don't want to feel like they're being watched. So they, they, they call it a dehuman, they dehumanise the body. They make the body into an object, not a person anymore. Mm-hmm. And the way to do that is by covering up the eyes and the face. Um, and in both these cases, uh, there is a pillow used and placed over the face of both the women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's another interesting thing that tells you something about the potential killer, um, that they don't like women. In, in each case, there is signs of what's called overkill. So in terms of euthanasia, euthanasia is about ending the life of somebody in as gently a way as possible. Mm-hmm. What we see with both the women is that the level of violence used goes far beyond what is necessary to kill them. Yeah, It's not just about killing them for this killer. It's about the act itself. It's, it's about... There's something, there's an element of hatred there. Mm. Um, so it's not just about ending the person's life, it's about carrying out an act of hate. Um, and in both the men, we see less of a kind of um, slightly less of a friend, frenzied kind of um, uh, injuries. Although in Donald's case, Donald obviously suffers from heavy injuries. But what we see with wife is she she stabbed in the neck a dozen times. Mm. Um, So her injuries are, I mean, appalling and go far beyond what was required to kill her. So we'd be looking at psychologically, certainly the women, elderly women, are the the primary target. The men are kind of the secondary. uh, they're, They're kind of there. Somebody likes to control people who likes to feel powerful who likes to control vulnerable people, who carries out the act, likes to get away with it, likes to think they're clever, avoided detection from the police, and they've managed to get the the husband blamed and kept closed. Like with this, obviously, because it's an unsolved case, and like in many unsolved cases, people theorise for days, and you could theorise about so many different things. But one thing I'm interested in is... The, the theory of the gender behind the serial killer, because usually when you think serial killer, it's normally you think man. But thinking about the old, I think she's called the little old lady killer in Mexico. Um, you know, an elderly person might be seen as an easier target, I guess, for a female serial killer, um, just in terms of being an easier target. Was that ever kind of brought into the theories? And I mean, your guess when you look at kind of the, the violence against the women and how the men weren't as touched you might think man but for me I don't know why my head is thinking woman 
it's possible. I mean, there's a whole range of possibilities. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Police, police have the names of suspects. Um, you know, so um, I think it, it's something that couldn't be ruled out. You know, I mm-hmm. think area of a woman would be interesting. It, it, it'd have to be somebody, you know, because serial killers often go for uh, people who are vulnerable in some way because they're easier targets. You know, that's what we see. Absolutely, you know, Ian yeah. Brady went for children. Um, you know, it's often elderly couples. Well, sorry, in this case, it's elderly couples. Um, but it's often young women who are alone, for example, with Levi Belfield. That was his tactic. He'd surprise a woman on their own at night walking in the streets of London. There's always some sort of vulnerability aspect. Yeah. You very rarely get a serial killer who's taking, you know, an, a, an equally physically capable man. Yeah. Uh, although it does, it, you know, it does happen, you know. Um, but there's always kind of a, usually there's a vulnerability aspect. And I think for it to be a woman in this case, it is possible um, the whole aspect of this case is they have to have an, the killer has to have an element of control over the couple because there's two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in, in in both the cases, there is evidence that the that the man is killed first, um, followed by the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is that, that I mean, there's several reasons, but in the first case. Um, the you know the bag that is on Howard's head, um, uh, that has blood on it. It's spattered, it's spattered with blood. Mm-hmm. And officers looked at that and said, "Well, how how is you know how has that happened? How is how is how has the bag been spattered with blood? Uh, if if Orville is already dead." And the act mm-hmm. of killing Oriel has already happened. She's lying there, and then and then Howard just puts the bag over his head, and then he's dead. Um, he's he's lying on the bed. So where does the blood? How does B Ainsworth's blood get spattered on the bag that is over Howard's head? So one possibility is that uh, Howard was uh, suffocated. That's where the bruises on his lips come from. Uh, the bag was placed over his head. Uh, he's, 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 he's suffocated, uh, put onto the bed. Uh, and then after that, that's when B is killed. And when she's getting hit about the head by a hammer, the blood is flying around the room and that spatters onto the bag, which is next to her husband. That's one possibility. So it's all about kind of aspect, you know, there has to be control there. I think it'd be easier for a man. Um, but it doesn't it certainly doesn't rule out a woman. Mm. And this this is uh like her her the report was so in-depth and it obviously was into all these different layers of of criminal criminology and crime scene analysis. But how was um this report received by the Cheshire Police? So Cheshire Police basically said they reviewed it and they were happy with their conclusions. Um it, which is interesting considering, you know, there's several forensic experts who've looked at Stephanie's report and said that they find it highly worrying. You know, they find that they found, there the were two forensic experts who said 
that Cheshire Police were likely to have got it wrong. You know, that they looked far more likely to both be double murders than murder-suicides due to, you know, the evidence that was found at both crime scenes. Uh, to them, you know, the blood spatter and the patterns in each crime scene was consistent with double murder. Um, lots of different reasons for that. Um, in the second case, the Donald and Oriel Ward case, um, there was evidence that basically Donald's body had been moved, that it had been flipped. He'd been looking up at the... That basically the blood showed that he should have been face down into his pillow uh, mm -hmm. because uh, he had blood on his face and that with the pillow. Um, but what they found, when the police went into the crime scene, he was face up to the ceiling and he's staring face up at the ceiling. So there were actually, you know, investigators at the time couldn't figure out how he'd managed to turn over. <laughs> so, um, so there was that, so there was, there wasn't really worrying evidence, but basically Cheshire police decided to stick with their findings. They were under a lot of pressure at the moment, Cheshire police, because there's a big kind of court case going on, the Lucy Letby, yeah. the nurse who ha is being tried at the moment uh, for allegedly kind of murdering uh, babies in a neonatal ward in a hospital. Mm -hmm. But the Cheshire detectives were extremely busy with that when Stephanie delivered her review. So there okay. may be an element of um, they just didn't have the resource to open mm -hmm. up two cases that were 20 years old when they had such a big murder trial to prepare, to prepare for. Mm -hmm. And even more to the fact, I suppose, even if the police were to agree that these two were actually murder-suicides, how then would they link them together and say, because this is obviously the theory that's been proposed, that this is a serial killer called the silver killer. How would they then connect that these two scenes, you know, are, the, are, of, are from the same killer? I mean, it's very difficult for them. I can understand why there is no, I mean, the problem is there's no smoking gun. Uh, there is a, you know, there's a potential group of suspects, mm -hmm. you know, the police are aware of, but there is no kind of eyewitness, new eyewitness evidence. There's no CCTV. The forensics, I mean, forensics do still play a part because after 20 years, you know, there'll be huge advances in forensic technology. You know, you can now do things, you know, currently that you could not do back then. Brace, trace, DNA, testing, um, which didn't exist back then. You know, now, if somebody touches a surface, you can get trace DNA off it. You know, in the 90s, the rule was, if you can't see it, you can't test it. You know, that's the rule of thumb that police used. So, you know, there's huge advances done and they'll still have material from both crime scenes in a locker somewhere. You know, Cheshire police, the police will, in such cases, they do archive material from crime scenes for decades. Mm -hmm. So one way of linking both crime scenes would be to retest the murder weapons, the clothes, the things found at the, at, at the scene of the crime and see if they get the same DNA uh, linked to both crime scenes. And if you do, then you potentially got the same person uh, in each house um, at the time of the murder. Mm -hmm. 
And I suppose that's, you know, my next and kind of final question is, where is this case going to go from here? I mean, if the Cheshire police aren't, you know, willing to review them again, what can actually happen now? I think the only thing that could possibly reopen it now, I mean, I think personally, this will always remain a mystery unless something really does happen in terms of a breakthrough. Somebody comes forward and provides the truth which mm-hmm. might uh, damage somebody's alibi, you know, um, or a, a new eyewitness comes forward. You know, really, what would, what, what, what would need to happen is that, you know, relationships change over time. Mm-hmm. That somebody who's protecting somebody might possibly, you know, have read the book or have read the newspaper reports or listened to this podcast now and might decide to come forward to the police with new information that will then compel them to open the case back up and to carry out perhaps forensic testing. Because really, cold cases like this that are decades on, the only thing that really can move these things on after such a long time is for our forensic. But the advances are such that it may be worth going over that evidence again. Perfect. Well, look, David Collins, author of The Hunt of the Silver Killer, thank you so much for joining us. Brilliant. No problem. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.